pupusas is a Salvadorian dish. Somebody told me it's like the soul of food in El Salvador because it's everywhere. So we make a little flat tortilla first. We put some cheese. So we start layering what we're gonna put. So um, right now we're gonna do a revuelta, which is cheese, pork skin, which is we call it chicharrón. The beans have been cooked first for uh, about three hours. The vegetables, those are raw. My grandma used to say that I have hot hands and I dry the masa very quick. So you have to put a little bit of oil in your hand. If it's not, the masa will stick in your hands and you cannot do this. Perfect, that's it, perfect, perfect. A little paper and we're gonna do that. So I now we just wait for them to cook. Two flips. You should not be flipping it back and forth all the time. Two flips should be enough. So these ones are ready to go. Some people like them very crispy, very, um, and when the cheese start coming out, and some people like them soft. There we go. So let's eat now. My name is Kenneth Katz. And Janet Flores Katz. We are the owners of Buenos Dias Cafe. In La Bodega de Med. In Atlanta, Georgia. And this is the Kosher Guacamole Podcast. Live. From the Met in Atlanta. From the Met in Atlanta. <laughs> uh. Jeanette and I own a restaurant in the Adair Park neighborhood of Atlanta, Georgia. And it's a long journey on how we got here, but it has definitely been changed by the pandemic and how we're here now. We've been together 27 years now. The restaurant, this restaurant's been open a year, even though it's not really a restaurant now, it's a to-go grocery Money. store. Yeah, it's a bodega. Yeah. <laughs> and Buenos Dias was, would be turning eight if it was open right now. So it's been a journey, but to get here, we have to go all the way back to San Francisco in the 90s. 90, oh my God, sounds like. <laughs> they, they were just yesterday. Hey, I feel like a 90-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the 90s, oh God. <laughs> so I got to San Francisco in 1993 took a job at the Pier Market restaurant on Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. Actually, on Pier 39, next to Fisherman's Wharf on Pier 39. And who would be working there but... Me. <laughs> I was the one who used to welcome everybody. I was the hostess. And I got to San Francisco in 91 after serving in the Salvadorian Army for five years and trying to look for new adventures, new new things to do so i crossed the boring hills when she left i mean i didn't know her then but when she left el salvador she realized that there would be um some it, questions along the way because she had to go through el salvador guatemala and mexico to get here and so she dressed in like i was going to church so that people would assume that she really is just traveling not trying to illegally enter the country I have my Bible, I have a little package. Their goal was to get to the, the border of Mexico. And when you see the movies of how they just board a bus and look at everybody, that was legit, right? That, that, the, they're just going to look at everybody, flash a flashlight, and decide if you look like you're traveling somewhere or if you're trying to emigrate. So that was their plan with the church clothes, was they looked like they were just traveling within Latin America, not going, well, why would you be going to the U.S. in your suit and dress? 
fact, we went from one bus to another, just taking another bus, another bus. Nobody really stopped us. And it was uh, Christmas Eve. I said, I need to cross now. And then an, a car is waiting for you on the other side and take you to a house. And then from there, I took a plane to uh, Nevada. From Nevada, it took me to San Francisco. It's crazy. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible story. We met at Pier Market Restaurant on Pier 39 in San Francisco, California. Where all the sea lions are every morning, every day. Every day, All all day. Back home, we have businesses. We did handbags, we did shoes, we did clothes, hats. I mean, anything that it was made it, we made it. That was and your we, family. Yeah. You, you say we, yeah. Yeah, not 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 us. I mean, um, my family back home. Yeah. And the whole idea that I wanted to do import export from El Salvador, and that's what I wanted to come and learn. You know, to to go back. And when I got here, my family in San Francisco said, in two years, you're not going to be able to do that. You need at least five, and you know, you need to go to school, and you know. So I did all that. Of course, I got interrupted by the gringo over here, mm. and, and everything changed. <laughs> That's not... Well, the go-home plan got interrupted, but also, you going to work at Pier Market before me. Yeah. That's also a little random. Jeanette decided that she wasn't going to go work in a typical Latin California restaurant where everybody spoke Spanish because she wouldn't learn any English. The same as I used to work in kitchen so I could practice my Spanish. She needed to go work in an Americanized restaurant so she could learn her English. So she took. She applied for a job at this restaurant. So after getting frustrated and trying to work with um, the Latino community, and the last one, I said, "Hey, I did not cross Rio Grande to make burritos and sleep with you." I said, <laughs> I, "I could stay home, and I could have a driver, my apartment, and everything, and I smell like a burrito." I said, "So uh, definitely no, no." So of course he fired me right away. <laughs> And I said, screw my community. I can't believe I have to run away from this. So I said, I'm going to go where the gringos are. I'm going to learn the language. I'm going to learn the culture. And I'm going to become who I want to become. Cost of living in San Francisco was getting out of control. Um, Our rent control department went from... $600 to $610 in rent when we lived there based on the laws in San Francisco. But the minute we moved out, it went from $610 to $930. And this was 27 years ago. So there's no reference point of economics here. It's just that's how valuable real estate was becoming. And we now know, of course, in 2020, that that apartment probably goes for $3,200. But anyway, while Jeanette had a a small family there that was very supportive, it wasn't her whole family. And flying to El Salvador was a nine-hour flight. And all my family was back east, so we decided to come back east. We settled in Miami, had two kids. Jeanette opened a bridal business. I worked for a corporation so that I could grasp that structure a little bit better before we moved forward. We had a little side ice cream business. But then when Hurricane Katrina and Wilma came 10 weeks apart in 2005, we questioned why we were still in Miami. It was just not, we didn't have to be there. You know, my. My dad and stepmom were there half a year. We weren't going to El Salvador. Jeanette's mother was no longer alive. 
at that point. And we decided between Atlanta and Philadelphia, we realized how much easier it would be to buy a house in Atlanta while living in Miami because you could drive back and forth until you did. And so that's what we did. I had lived here once before. I went to school here. So we had still had some connections. And we came up here and got our feet in the ground and tried to figure out what business we were going to get into. We took jobs. Um, but ultimately, we knew we would start something on our own again. And while doing research on a restaurant in a, a different neighborhood, we went to the SBA in downtown Atlanta. And in that same building was a restaurant for rent in the middle of Georgia State University. And we knew some people who were at the early stages of Kinko's and had always told us that being around universities gave you a guaranteed business flow that you can actually manage, both because of the time of day, but also because when school's in session versus not. So we thought that would be a much more stable startup business environment because of that. So we took that place in November of 2012 and Buenos Dias was born. My name is Leslie Baez Monterrubio. I didn't technically apply for the job. I walked in one day and it was like my very first time there. My friend brought me and she already knew Ken a little bit. And she was like, this is my friend Leslie. She just moved in like a block away. And he was like, oh, that's cool. Do you want a job? And I was like, how did he know? So then I got a job. And, and as they say, the rest is history. They changed um, the location of this uh, venue called The Masquerade from like Ponce area to what used to be oh, underground, underground, underground Atlanta. So when I was there, like this band called The Main that I really liked when I was in high school was having a show there. One day for lunch, I just see The Main walk into Buenos Dias and I am literally sitting there like my draw is on the ground I have to compose myself because I'm literally about to serve like one of my favorite angsty childhood bands and the lead singer is at the front of this line right and so he comes up and Ken is kind of nosy so he is looming over my shoulder and sees this group of guys and it's like kind of obvious it's a band like they have that vibe you know and so Ken sees me taking his order and I'm literally just writing it all down my heart is pounding and Ken goes so who is it what's his name and I haven't written it on the ticket. And this is, in his eyes, like a stranger to me, right? And the guy, I can see him after Ken goes, what's his name? I see the guy about to say his name. And I just look up at Ken and I go, that's John O'Callaghan. And then the kid just like starts smirking. And he's just like laughing at me. And then, of course, Jeanette, being the mom that she is, was like, okay, sit down with them after they got their food. She was like, sit down with them, sit closer. Leslie, sit close. Like basically wants me like on his lap. She's like, I'm going to take a picture. I was swooning for sure. Bodega at the Met is an idea that Jeanette and I had that we could serve many needs of a community incorporating ideas we've taken from other communities. Growing up in the Bronx, of course, bodegas are as commonplace as QT stations are in Atlanta, I guess, is the best comparison. I think the most interesting thing we have found since we started looking at this concept was when you Google what is a bodega versus a deli versus a corner store in New York, there are certain distinctions, but I think they're very blurred. And I think there's been an allowance when you take it out of New York that you can be a little bit of all for for these communities. And it still serves the ultimate need of convenience and quality. One of the things we did when we did Buenos Dias was we took 
ideas food and service wise from different parts of the country and world that we've lived in and brought them all into one place so we had salvadoranian pupusas our pico de gallo recipe was from a mexican chef that we worked with in san francisco our cuban sandwich was made from uh roasted pork recipe that we got in miami our fresh bread insistence was only because of new york and san francisco and miami actually where everywhere we went if you try it hard enough and willing to pay you can get fresh bread so we took all those ideas again and said what can we do over in adair park adair park sits on the corner of um the west side right where the west end actually meets adair park so we're across from the west end martyr station so there's that kind of service where your people getting off the train as well as a vibrant living community who um has been grown now because people are working from home so much more than they were before and we have found that if we just listen to what people need, we can provide them with exactly the kinds of things they want. And I think that idea comes all the way back from when a corner store in New York where the guy on the corner knows what everybody in the apartment buildings above and around him are going to need and want. And we do that here, too, trying to figure out when people are wanting food, when people are needing a chance to get out and when they do decide that they can't just do uber eats or instacart anymore (laughs) i think that's what the corner store did in new york too you even even pre-pandemic even 30 40 years ago when i lived there it was a convenience store right it was so that you can go in and get out the bus was coming you can get right on the bus or the train was coming you can jump up on the train right away so we try to do the same thing where we're not going to stand in line in Kroger and this time when people don't want to go stand in lines and be in a crowded store and we have only to goes right now that might change someday but right now we only have to go so that people can be outside and thank goodness we live in Atlanta where the weather isn't too harsh too often so that it's not uncomfortable at the same time we take on the added expense of doing all the online services which are expensive Uber Eats is 30 to 33 percent but it allows people to have food brought to them maybe from a greater distance than they want to come out and get it. So there's pluses and minuses to all of it. And I think it all turns back to the things we've seen in other places we've lived where you you have to create many avenues for people to express how they want their food but also how you can get it to them matching up speed with price and quality. That's one of the things that probably help us a lot more that we are online even if, like Ken said, you know, it, it, it cost us a lot to, to be online, knowing that, you know, restaurant business is only 7% margin. I had a, a very hard transition from New York City life to living in Atlanta. And of course, this was pre-Olympics, pre-Democratic Convention, pre-much infrastructure gains that we've seen now 35 years later, 34 years later. But one of the things I couldn't understand then was the lack of reliance on the corner store, the bodega, the, 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 the delis that we had in New York. And I understand, looking at it now, the lack of foot traffic. You don't have the same commuter schedule here that we have in New York. The, the, the lack of reliance on public transit, the idea that people don't get out of their apartment and walk to somewhere every day isn't the same. But you can still have a need for the corner store or the bodega or the market in this community. And certainly now, 34 years later, the demographic and the, the human geography of Atlanta has changed in such a way that what the bodega would bring is more realistic. People 
don't need to buy giant packages of food and and supplies. They need individuals. Sometimes you only just need one or two things and you don't want to go to a big grocery store. And those were all the things that the bodega was to us in New York, right? We had grocery store chains in the city, of course, but you still... If you just needed some a bag of sugar, you could just go to this corner store and get a bag of sugar. You didn't have to go all the way to the grocery store and wait in line. If you just needed a quick milk, if you needed something at a kind of odd hour, they were always open. We'd like to see the bodega get to that point where it's open late night. And then they always had the best food because they made it every day because they made only a little bit. And they were making it off of fresh food that they got brought in for them, like whether it was... A good deal on chicken legs, so they made it some kind of chicken quarter, or whether it was they always made fresh hamburger every day. Just like in El Salvador, refrigeration is at a is a privilege. You know, you, you can't pay to keep everything cold. It's much easier to just bring things in fresh every day and not pay for the storage. Square footage rent in New York has always been a giant issue, so we can do the same thing here. We cut everything fresh. We make everything daily. We try to go through one day's supply worth of stuff so that we can do it all over again tomorrow. Jeanette likes to say how the inexperienced cook comes in here and says, oh, why don't we just cut onions for a week? And she looks at the cook and goes, then what would you do tomorrow? You know, we're creating job stability. <laughs> and and it definitely creates a better product and differentiates us from others, We, you know, particularly on the weekends when people have a little bit more time and uh, if the weather's nice, people will sit out right outside. And, you know, the, everything's in a to-go box now, but they still will sit outside and eat something and they'll come back and go, man, I'm going to be back. That was really good, you know, and. The, same, the corner store in New York or the bodega or the deli, it's the same thing because you don't have to go back to that store because there's another one three doors down. So if you're going back, it's because it's good and it's fresh and it's what you were looking for. And it's, it's very similar to back home. Everything is, is made to order. A mercado is usually a government-owned. It's, it's, it's a government building. And everybody has... 10 by 10, per se, um, stall in uh, the area where the kitchens are, areas where, you know, you sell other products. And it's pretty much like, you know, a bodega. But um, there is no refrigeration. And nobody dies. Nobody gets food poisoned. Because everything is fresh. And when it's done, when you sold out, you sold out. You know, maybe Doña Maria down the hall has more food. But here, just the idea of making this giant package of food and put it in the refrigerator and keep selling that for weeks, that is disgusting. A vegetable is like a human being when you die, right? After a couple of days, you start smelling. So it's the same with the vegetables and fruit. Once you cut them, they're completely dead. And every day is losing its nutritional value. So at the end, if it's, you know, the whole week had been cut by Friday, that vegetable has no nutritional value whatsoever. So I don't know what happened to the industry because the industry is supposed to, Yes, you're making money. That's the reason it's only 7%. Uh, but you're not becoming rich to serving food. My name is Marlene Maldonado. 
I am a former employee here. My favorite memory was probably when I interviewed here. I remember I was nervous. I'd interviewed for one other place and I definitely didn't get it. So I decided to dress up like kind of business casual. I was in a dress and some flats and I met Jeanette first and she was really nice. She was trying to make me feel comfortable. Uh, we were speaking Spanish. She was just making sure I knew Spanish, I think. And then Ken came by and he's like, did you get all dressed up just for this interview? And I felt kind of silly, but that really gave me an insight on like their humor and their dynamic. I got to actually socialize with like not only students, but even professors. And I always felt welcome there. Like if I had a bad day, they're just very open, nice. I don't know how to say kinder things about them. They're really nice and I really appreciate like the job I had there and the time I spent there that they gave me the chance to be there. They like fed us. The Met Atlanta is a hundred year old million square foot property that's never had any food on it. Jeanette and I felt that there was an opportunity here both with the emerging market and the existing businesses that were in, when I say emerging market, I should say emerging neighborhood, right, Adair Park and the West End. At the same time, the Met itself was newly sold, and the developer who had come in here, we had met because they had also worked on a project near Georgia State. Carter is their name, and they developed Summerhill. And they were looking to have some kind of food 100 years, like I said here, and a million square feet, they never had any food here. So we decided that to serve this kind of mixed community, you couldn't just be a restaurant. The Med has offered us an opportunity to try a few different things that we may not have had the opportunity to try downtown. One, because there's a constant flow of people. We have a, an audience seven days a week, which we did not have downtown. Um, because of the size of the space, we're able to work on new things at the same time as executing our daily tasks that already exist, which downtown was a problem. And I think that's as much to do with size as it is cost of downtown rent. This is this space obviously doesn't cost what a downtown retail location costs. So we're able to be a little bit flexible with, oh, let's try that today, you know. And also, I think... Um they are even if they have a lot of rent you know they have a lot of space they are being very careful in how they actually have the people coming into they want to still keep that neighborhood you know idea in not having big corporations come in and and I don't think they they want a Kentucky Fried Chicken in here. Or at the same time, they're also telling young entrepreneurs, not yet. They've sent us a few because we let them pop up once or twice a week, and instead of making the full time commitment of being here, they can just try their product out through one of our to go windows short term to see if it's viable. I, I think it is also again because they're looking up to the community, and you know if. Their, our success is their success and I think they have a very good vision of what they want from here I think also they recognize the environment they're in as far as this neighborhood and providing an asset to their actual tenants as well as endearing themselves to the neighborhood Right? You, they were providing 
the people this was this space was 85% rented when they bought it and it's, and they've maintained that level there's no there's no rush to get anybody else in here or to let anybody go but to eat on this property you had to either bring food or drive off and now the entry level worker to executives who have suites here an opportunity to eat which i think going back to the idea of the bodega and what you know, growing up in the bronx one of the things that we did both at Buenos Dias in here is we've created accessibility for all price points. One of our favorite ways to look at it is, is can a broke college student and the professor both eat here, right? And so we have to, over here, it's can the, again, the entry-level employee or the owner of the building eat here, which is the exact same thing we saw in New York, right? Everybody uses the deli in the corner store. It doesn't matter who you are. My name is Zai Quetta. I started working at Buenos Dias Cafe around 2017, I guess. Sounds right. Yeah. When I first got there, I moved to Atlanta. I didn't have a job, and I was really scared to go to into a place that said Buenos Dias Cafe. I was like, oh, they're not going to hire a person that looks like me. So, um, But I took a chance, and he hired me on the spot. We had a lunch rush. Um, and because Buenos Dias was like a family and I, my roommates, we all worked there. <laughs> After that lunch rush, we stayed in the kitchen and helped her cook and clean. And we helped her put everything together. There was music playing and it was just a really good time. I think she has a picture of it actually because um, she was just, I don't know. It was just like we cared about that place so much. She was just so happy that like we were acting like a family, I think. And that was one of my best memories. Buenos Dias was a great place for me, a great memory. I'm actually very sad that that place, it's not really there anymore. And that does make me sad because I've created a family from there. You know, I was scared. I made all of my friends through Buenos, Buenos Dias Cafe. Ken and Jeanette were really like parents to me and I really just appreciate it. Um, I hope they know that, like they really were a family to me. And boss man, that's what I call him. I call Mr. Ken. Um, I call him boss man just because that's my big boss. That's the only boss I liked in my life. So <laughs> I learned how to cook pupusas because of them. And now the only thing I drink are cafe con leches. <laughs> and I found the one place in Columbus, Georgia that has cafe con leches. And I'm so excited. They must have laughed when you came in and ordered they that. They did. I was like, oh, you got pupusas? They were like, that's a Salvadorian. I was like, you're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but all I eat now are, you know, plantains and cafe con leche. Best things ever. <laughs> Jeanette and I look at fostering community in, in two ways. We look at it internally within the business and how we spend spread it outside of the business. And if we enable our business to be a community or a family, then that message is going to resonate with the customer, although we hate the word customer, our guests. Um, and they are going to feel a sense of community where there's no judgment. We don't know who you are. We don't know what you make. One of our favorite Buenos Dias stories was our customer named Dave, who had been coming every day for years. He was an older man. He was obviously a professor at the school. And one day, somebody walks, a student walks in and calls him Dr. I won't even say his last name because I don't remember what it was. But they calls him Dr. something, and I'm looking around going, who's the doctor? I don't know anybody here who's a doctor. Turns out Dave has got you know two doctorates in biology and is the head of the biology lab department. We never knew. We never asked. We didn't care. We just served him a sandwich every day. That's what he wanted. 
But at the same time, his student found him there, and that student was coming in as well and certainly didn't have two doctorates nor, <laughs> nor, nor the income that Dr. Dave had. So it's important that you just provide the, the same quality and service with your $2 espresso shot as you do with your $14 quesadilla. While we're creating that community in our service, you're also creating it for the people waiting outside and recognizing each other from the neighborhoods or from consistently being here or somebody who lives here who's waiting online with somebody who works here. And they're here for the same reason because this is the place they want to be. For It may be for the Cuban coffee, it may be for a fresh-baked muffin, or it may be to pick up a catering order. I cannot agree more. <laughs> <laughs> you always right, my dear. Oh. <laughs> well, of course, when I say so. <laughs> When we're being recorded. (laughs) (laughs) Jeanette and I are really lucky that we get to work together every day and that people we engage with love our story. I think for its honestness, but also for its uniqueness and the opportunity to share it with more people at this time is probably the best time to do it. There's been a lot of craziness in the world and in our lives, transitioning from downtown to Dare Park. Our kids are growing up. One's off in college and one's in high school. Our employees, which we also call our kids, are growing up. We had seven college students working for us last semester. We have two now, of which only one is from last semester. They've moved on. They're not coming back to school. And we want to show people that it can be done, but you have to be aware of other things that you're doing, not just the one task that you think is the most important because again what is most important to you may not be what's important to somebody else but everything you do has some purpose and so that's why we're doing this I have to say luck has nothing to do with this preparation Mm. means opportunity and it's not easy I would say 60% of the time I want to kill my husband (laughs) And I'm sure 80% he going to kill me. <laughs> but as a couple, you need to understand what can you live with. I guess it's, it's, it's more like a, a, the relationship had been the same from the beginning. Even if in the beginning he thought I was going to say, oh, yes, honey, all the time, right? Because I didn't speak English. It's that much was, easier then. That was <laughs> the joke all the time. Oh, it was nicer when you didn't speak English, honey. <laughs> So, because he thought, it's like, okay, honey, okay. Yeah, I was saying, okay, okay, because I couldn't explain it. And then when I started explaining, like, holy cow, <laughs> I did not know this going to be this hard. But um, we have fun. We have up and downs like any other couple and like in any other business partners. Again, like he said, you have to understand what your focus is. If it's making money, ain't not going to happen. Because it, this is not going to make you rich. It's going to give you a living, you know, and you have focus of what you want to, you know, what you want to do. We want to focus in the family. We want to focus in in the community and all that. And money will come. Sounds naive and ridiculous, you know, for some people. But I always say, you know, when we close Buenos Dias, it's just a restaurant. The community still can come and see us over here. We can still serve people in that way we're blessed but again preparation means opportunity we saw the opportunity to come with Carter and we took it and you know we keep and do it
And we'll be back with another episode of more guacamole. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha